father. Jacob saw in a way similar, I saw my brother's gift and he decided that he wanted it. Obviously my story didn't really have spiritual significance, but Jacob, he looked at his brother's gift and decided it was better than his. And his exact motives aren't necessarily listed in scripture, but we aren't hard pressed to see that Jacob thought his brother's plan, the the plan that God had for his brother's life was better than the plan that God had for his life. So he attempted to steal this birthright and this blessing. We see in our text, Jacob on the run. In verse number 10, he, he's, he, he goes down to lay down to go to bed. We see this, and Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he lighted upon a certain place. It's interesting to note that at the beginning of the text here, the place has no significance whatsoever. It doesn't even get a name. And no doubt, Jacob thought was a, a kind of just a place he was going to be there, and he was going to sleep for one night, and he would awake and continue his journey on the run. It had no significance to him whatsoever. Not only to him, but obviously it seems like like the author of Genesis didn't even think it significant to put the name of the location here in verse number 11 as he says, a certain place. Jacob falls asleep and begin to dream in verse number 12 down to 15. And this is highly significant as we know this text from verse 12 to verse 15 to be the Abrahamic covenant. And this is this idea that God is has a plan for the patriarchs of Israel. And he has this plan for Jacob, even though he doesn't believe in it. And again, this is crucial because we have to get that Jacob didn't necessarily want this. And he, he knew that this was due him and he knew that he was going to get this from the Lord. But he said, you know what, this plan that you have for me and this idea of of a na- being a father of a nation, that doesn't sound interesting to me. That doesn't sound like I'm going to be blessed. That doesn't sound like I'm going to be protected. And so he felt like he had to steal his older brother Esau's birthright and his blessing. So God comes to him and he says, in a dream, he, we see a ladder. In verse number 12 it says, And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. This is interesting because I think God is counteracting this mindset that Jacob has. I think Jacob has this feeling that God doesn't really know what's happening in his life. I think Jacob thinks that God isn't really in control of his life. And we see this vision, I believe this ladder, is this, it symbolizes the connection between God and man. God says, I do know what's going on. I am connected to you. I, everything that is happening, I know about and I'm in control. I see this ladder as kind of a connection. You see angels running up and down on the ladder, and I believe that symbolizes God's messengers. Taking a message from man, a a cry for help and a cry for a blessing, running up to God and receiving protection and blessings from God, descending back down the ladder and giving Jacob his blessings and giving Jacob protection. We see that continue as God goes into the specifics of what this Abrahamic covenant was. We see this. We see, first of all, we see a powerful heritage. He says in verse number 13, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac. This isn't only important because his, his, both of his parents, his father and his grandfather are patriarchs of Israel, but also the God, God is going to be his God as well. We see this powerful heritage. Next, we see plenty land that God promises him in 13b and 14b. We see this, the land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it. So God is promising him this land, this certain place that he's staying on here. And also down in verse 14, 
it says, to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So not only is God saying you have a powerful heritage, but he's also saying, I'm going to give you plenteous land. We continue to look down in verse number 14 and we see this is innumerable posterity. We've heard this before time and time again as God has promised this blessing to his father and to his grandfather as well. But he says, his seed shall be as the dust of the earth. This is also this idea of the the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky. The whole point is God says, your your posterity or the generations to follow you, they can't even be counted. In a similar way, you can't count dust. You can't really count the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. Also notice this, and this is arguably one of the biggest things for Jacob, especially in his condition right now. God offers his godly protection. We see this in verse 15 at the end of the dream. God says, and behold, I am with thee and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest and will bring thee again into this land for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. So we see God, Jacob didn't specifically say that he didn't trust God, but we see God call him out on it. God says, I will be with you. I am with you and I'm not going to leave you until what I have promised to you is completed. You have my blessing. You have my protection. You have my heritage. You're going to have generations to follow you. Essentially, I have your back, Jacob, trust in me. We see this Jacob wakes up from the dream in verse number 16 and notice his reaction now after the dream compared to before the dream. We see this and Jacob awaked out of his sleep and he said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I knew it not. It's interesting to note that while Jacob is on the run, he's, he's not even thinking of God. Again, this, this kind of builds his character as he thinks he's going to overcome the situation in life that he's in without God's help. And he wasn't even conscious that the place he was in, God was also there. We see this, he builds a memorial to God in verse number 18. Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. Verse number 19, and he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city was called Luz at the first. This is significant as he changes the name of this location, which I didn't even know he was really allowed to do, but he says this is called Luz and everyone knows this city is Luz, but you know what, for me, this is, this is Bethel. And I wonder, the, the word Bethel here, it means house of God. It's broken up into two parts, Beth and El. Not really that difficult to understand. Beth meaning house or geographic location and El meaning God. But specifically, the strength and power of God. You see, what Jacob is trying to say by renaming this place from Luz to Bethel is that I was on the run and I was, I was afraid for my life and I stopped in a place and I didn't even care where I stopped. It wasn't a significant place. It wasn't irrelevant place. I didn't know where I was, but guess what? God was in that place. And Jacob said, I don't know what I'm doing in my life. And I've taken this birthright and I think I need to take my life into my own hands. And God said, no, you don't. I am with you. I am in this place. Jacob says, wow, this isn't a certain place. This is a Bethel. This is a place where God is. It's interesting that Bethel receives more mention in the new and old Testament than any other city except Jerusalem. This indicates it's important in biblical history. So this geographic location is important, but also this location is important spiritually speaking. This signifies a place in Jacob's life where he finally surrenders to God. And he accepts God's plan for him through the Abrahamic covenant rather than the birthright of his older brother. 
We see as the chapter continues, he vows a vow to God here. But really, this is what I want to highlight this evening. We see Jacob's interaction with God and he responds to God. And the only question that I have is, is, is why did he respond this way? And it seems not that important to build an altar and make a vow to God. Or, or it seems maybe not that significant to change the name of a place from Luz to um, from Luz to Bethel, I mean, you can look in the text. No one else calls this place Bethel except for Jacob and God. So what he did really wasn't even that significant, but it's indicative of something that's happening in his heart. Jacob changed the name of that place from Luz to Bethel because he wanted to remember that the Lord met with him there and provided for him there. I know I myself and maybe some of you this evening have a tendency to forget moments that God has met with us or spoken to us. And what this does is it causes us to think that He's not in control. As we forget to remember times God has spoken to us and given us direction, we say, wait a second, we forget that God has done something with us in the past, He's doing something with us right now, and He has a future for us. I think it's time as Christians we purposely take time to remember what God has done for us and let that encourage us to keep our trust in Him and not take our plans for our life in our own hands. I think this is also significant. We need to make markers in our lives so that we never forget what the Lord has done with us when He's met with us. Tonight, I I simply have two points of application. The first one, I think, is this, surrender. We see the story of Jacob, and it's not one of surrender. It's one of fighting God. It's one of fighting his family because he doesn't think that he's getting what he deserves. This evening, I, I, I just noticed that Jacob is in a place and he doesn't think God's in control of his life. And even so much so, he's willing to trick and steal from his own family. He didn't understand the significance and the specifics of God's plan for his life. And since he didn't understand it, he chose to believe that God didn't have one for him. Maybe this evening you don't have the job or the finances that you want, or you don't have what you think you deserve financially speaking, and you're ready to take it into your own hands. Maybe you're tempted to switch job to another, another job that's going to take you away from your family. It's going to take you away from your church, and you're going to miss service times. Let, let me exhort you here, brethren, if God has called you to a place, even if finances seem tight, stay where God has called you. Surrender to that plan. Maybe this evening... You've lost a loved one and you don't understand why. Deep down, you're having feelings of anger or even doubt that God's in control. Or, or maybe He is, but he, he obviously doesn't care. He let my loved one die. I wonder if there's a teen here this evening fighting God's call in your life to give up a music or a specific friend. I wonder if you're fighting a plan that He has for you, but it seems too daunting. It seems too scary. I wonder if a young single adult doesn't understand why they don't have a spouse yet and they're about to take it into their own hands and marry someone that they know is not the Lord's will for their life. Trust me, surrender to God's plan. It doesn't always make sense, but I promise you in the end, Jacob is glad he did this. I think of this, another simple, other than surrendering is is next. We see Jacob's interactions after the fact. We see this, not only surrender, but remember. Jacob specifically made a a, a monument. He piled up the rocks because he wanted to remember what God had done with him and what God met with him. I think in my own life, I've made some some, uh, monuments along the way. I've stacked some rocks along the way. December 11th, 2008, on a Monday morning on the way to school in Lornburg, North Carolina, I got saved. And that place doesn't mean anything to any of you. Just like no doubt Luz and and Bethel didn't mean anyone to anyone else except Jacob. But guess what? On the highway, on the way to school in a 30-minute commute, there's a Bethel there. And I got saved and the Lord showed up and He changed my life. 
I think of this Indian Creek Baptist camp. Our, our, our teenagers always went there. And in the summer of 2014, I surrendered to preach. And I can think on that hot summer night out getting eaten by mosquitoes, just scared of what God had for my life. I, I think a pile of rocks that was playing into my feet. That's a Bethel to me. The Lord showed up in my life. And in, in times to come when ministry is going to be hard and it's going to be difficult, and I know it is. I mentioned before I'm a PK and I've, I've seen the worst of it. And I, know, and I know that it's not going to be easy. But what's going to happen is I'm not going to quit and I'm not going to give up. I'm going to look back to that summer night in 2014 when I was 12 years old when God tapped on my heart. I'm going to remember that Bethel. I'm going to remember those, those pile of rocks I was kicking because that's a Bethel to me. That's Luz to maybe hundreds of thousands of other teens across America who go there just to hang out or go there just to date. But Indian Creek Baptist Camp is a Bethel to me. I think of this Heartland Baptist Bible College. I, I, I know that it's, very, it's been very difficult my time there, and I've had to fight and struggle, and, but there's been a protection from God and there's been blessing. That is a place where I surrendered to grow and develop at a, as a Christian no matter the cost. Heartland's a Bethel for me. And at times, in, I, I already mentioned in my previous, or in my, uh, in my future ministry, there's going to be times where it's difficult, and I'm going to look back to Heartland and look back to that Bethel when God met with me. There's a, there's a lake near the school, Lake Hefner, and there's a walking trail around it. There's a rock on that lake that I go to pray to when I'm overwhelmed. That's a Bethel in my life. God shows up to me there. <clears throat> Not only surrender, but remember. Jacob finally gave up his will to God's and surrendered. And what did he do? He built an altar. My call to you this evening is when, it's, when it gets difficult in life and you, and you forget what God has done for you in your life and so you're tempted to take your will into your own hands instead of his, just stop and remember. Remember what God did for you. And I, and I, I want to challenge you that, to take that and let that motivate you to not take your will into your own hands, but continue to rely on God. This evening, don't be like Jacob in the beginning of the story. When he's fighting God, he's fighting his dad, he's fighting his brother and his family, stealing and lying, and he hasn't surrendered. Be like Jacob at the end of the story. When he gives it up and he surrenders to God and he says, finally, he's not done yet because in a couple of chapters, he's still not sold on this idea of the Lord's will. And he's actually going to wrestle God later here in this story. And he's still fighting to surrender. But then also this, inevitably when the time comes when you doubt God in his plan, Remember all the times he's been there for you in the past. And he'll continue to work with you in the present. And he has a perfect plan for you in the future. Let's pray in closing. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for this message, dear God. I pray that you continue to work this evening. And I pray that you bless Brother Tim as he comes up to preach. In your name we pray. Amen. Next, it warrants a bit of background that's, need, that's needed to fully understand what's going on in Judges 2. And so that's why I had you turn to Joshua, because we'll start at the end of that chapter and we'll work our way to the main text. So if you're in Joshua 24, I'm going to begin reading on verse 20 and go down to 28. So Joshua 24, starting on verse 20. If ye forsake the Lord and serve strange gods, then he will turn and do you hurt and consume you. After that, he hath done you good. And the people said unto Joshua, Nay, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said unto the people, Ye are witnesses against yourselves, that ye have chosen you, the Lord, to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now therefore put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you, and incline your heart unto the Lord God of Israel. And the people said unto Joshua, The Lord our God will we serve, and his voice will we obey. 
So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and set them a statue and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a great stone and set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said unto the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness unto us, for it hath heard all the words of the Lord, which he spake unto us. It shall be therefore a witness unto you, lest ye deny your God. So Joshua let the people depart, every man unto his inheritance. I'm going to open up in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity you've given to me to preach your word, Lord. Have me say nothing you wouldn't want me to say, and please bless the rest of this service, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to begin with telling you two stories. And these are hypothetical stories for sake of illustration, but they serve a purpose. Story number one, when I was a boy, I got lost in the woods, but my dad found me. Story number two, when I was a boy, I was lost in the woods and fell in a lake. At this age, I could not swim, so my doom was a certainty. When I thought there was no hope, my dad jumped in the water to save my life, and then he carried me to the hospital to make sure I was okay. That's story number two. See, these are both the same stories, but one makes dad seem a whole lot greater than the other. You see, dad did a great thing in this second story, but it wasn't highlighted in the first. And like I said, I made up those stories for sake of illustration, but if those events happened and that story was to be told, what sets the story apart, apart is found in the second. If you were to hear the first, nothing would stand out. In the Israelites' history, they had a story to tell. They're coming out of the wilderness wanderings where God had done so much for them. They'd seen God bring them out of Egypt. God had done miraculous things in the life and even history of Israel that was supernatural, that no one else could have brought them from besides God. Israel had a story to tell. But what would happen if they were to recount the story like I did in story number one? I believe we'll see that in our text tonight. But for now, look back at at Joshua, and we'll see where I just read, we'll see Joshua's final charge and Israel's obedience. So Joshua, in the beginning of, of, of chapter 24, he gathers all the elders, he gathers all the Israelites, he gathers all the people there for one final charge, to deliver them one final charge to the, to the Israelites. And he, he gathers them all together, and really summed up and, and summarized, and, and we're kind of going over some things, but just a, a big summary of what jo- the point Joshua was trying to get across, the, what the, the idea of what was flowing to and flowing out of was this, it was choose who ye will serve. And he asked that just above where we read, he would, he would say, choose who ye serve. He, was, he came to, to Israel with this proposition to, and, and asked them this. And Israel would re- reply to Joshua, they'd, they'd tell them that, that we want to serve God. They had a desire to serve God, and they showed this. They showed they showed a, a willingness to serve the Lord, which which wasn't was wasn't always the case in Israel's history. And so, God, and so Joshua came to them with this charge of choose who you will serve. And the Israelites came back to Joshua and said, "We will serve our God." They said a direct quote. They said, "God forbid we don't choose God." And then Joshua would 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 put a warning label on it because where we read, we're, we're about to read a covenant. But before they made that covenant, Joshua puts kind of a warning label uh, on it. I think of something like McDonald's coffee. They're silly warning labels where you look at it and says, caution, this is hot. And, and you're thinking, well, I hope it's hot. I got coffee. 
And I think of warning labels like that, but that, that are silly and that are, that are obvious. But this warning label wasn't anything silly. This was serious. Joshua would warn them, warn them of what would happen if they were to break this covenant with God. Joshua warned them of an, of a, of a jealous God, of a, of a righteous, a righteously angry God that if they were to, to break this covenant of, of punishment, that would certainly happen to them. And he warns them of this. He puts a warning label on it. But again, the Israelites double down and they, they, they commit themselves to this covenant with God. They commit themselves to God. So we now see Israel in what seems to be sort of a spiritual high. The generation that was present for this charge made a commitment and a covenant to serve God and not false idols. And that's exactly what they did. Look back at verse 29. I'm going to read 29 to 31. It says, neither did Ephraim drive out, or sorry, Ooh, I started wrong. Verse 29, it says, And it came to pass after these things that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. So Joshua dies, and then we're going to go into a little bit of the future tense here. It says, and we'll get some details on how they buried him, and then go to 31, And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, and which had known all the works of the Lord that he had done for them. So that's significant here because we get, we get what seems to be three categories, but it's really two. We get this category of the, the people fulfilled the covenant that lived among Joshua, that lived among him currently. And then we get the category of the people who lived, who outlived Joshua, they fulfilled this covenant. They, they, they served the Lord the rest of their days. And this is, this is important. And then this, this third category that seems to be a third, but it really, the two fall into it. Those who had seen all the things the Lord had done. So you, you have an Israel here, an Israel that, that, that stood on what the Lord had done for them, that had seen the great things the Lord had done, and that had heard the great things the Lord had done, and they, they, they had solidified in their heart to serve the Lord the rest of their days because they knew what He had done. We just heard about, about Brother Grant talking about remembering. This is what Israel had in their hearts. They had remembered what the Lord had done for them. They had solidified it in their hearts, and in that, through the greatness of God, they, they allowed themselves to have faith and, and to serve God the rest of their days, and they did. And this is rare for Israel. This is a rare point for Israel to, to actually be serving the Lord like they did, but they, they did. They served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elder that outlived Joshua. So Joshua ends on a high note. The children of Israel are serving God. They have come off victories and spiritual highs, and they're ready to take the chosen land. And that leads us in chronologically into the book of Judges. It starts off now after the death of Joshua. That's how chapter 1 starts. And just a really quick broad overview of, of the book, I'm sorry, of the chapter, we see that, that, we see that the, this chapter I, I entitled this, New Leadership, New Problems. And so Joshua had just died, and so now there's no leader to lead the Israelites. And so the, the, they are to, to, Joshua just sent them off to conquer the land of Canaan, which is what he's, he's a, the uh, fulfillment of the prophecy. It's what he, they're about to do, but they need a leader. And so God chooses a leader, but not like he did with, with Joshua, and not like he did with Moses necessarily. He chooses more of a tribe led by Judah to go and, and lead these conquests on the land of Canaan. And so they do just that, and they set out, and, and they're defeating the Canaanites, and they're driving them out of the land, and they're doing as God said, and they're still in obedience to God. They're, they're doing what, what he said. They're, they're fulfilling this covenant that they made. They're conquering the lands of Canaan, just like, they, just like God told them he would empower them to do. But something happens. 
You see, they would come across these chariots, and so they'd stop. If you look at verse 19, it says, and the Lord was with Judah. He was doing, he was with them. They were fulfilling what the Lord wanted. They were conquering the lands. And the Lord was with Judah. And he drave out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. It says they, they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley. And it, it doesn't seem like it, it would be such of a big deal if he couldn't, he couldn't. It, and it doesn't tell us why, so we're not going to dwell on it too much. But there is significance here. Because if you go on to read the book of Judges in chapter 3, they come across something just like this, and they, and they do defeat the chariots. So, so you, know, you know that they have the ability to defeat these chariots as they come across Sisera and her army of 10,000 chariots in the valley just like this, and they defeat them. So you know they had all the ability to do this. And also you know in, in, in Deuteronomy 21, this is what I kind of want to highlight here, in Deuteronomy 21, when, when the Lord was preparing them when the Lord was preparing Israel to go into Canaan through Moses and, and through the author of Deuteronomy, he would deal with the Israelites and he, he'd tell them, literally, he said, if, and when you come across these chariots and when you, when you come across these things, these militaristic strategies that doesn't look like you can defeat, I'm gonna be with you. When you go through the lands of Canaan, I'll be with you to conquer them. And so there's a little bit of a discrepancy here. It's, it's almost as if Judah didn't have the confidence to defeat these chariots. It's almost like he didn't know. And that's where they're at right now is Judah's, Judah is now, the, Judah, because he couldn't conquer those chariots, they're kind of forced to live among the Canaanites. And at this same time, there were other tribes going through the land of Canaan, conquering Canaan. But as they were conquering Canaan, they, they were keeping some Canaanites alive, and they were using them for their own monetary benefits. They were sort of vassalizing them, meaning they're, they were using them for their, their like I said, their own benefit. And so they were, they were, to, they were conquering Canaan, but they were keeping some alive. And, and you'd see also in Deuteronomy that, that this was an issue. And God had dealt with this. You see, God knew all this was going to happen. And, and he had dealt with this beforehand to, to, to solidify what he, what he wanted them to do. And, and he had told them that when you come across Canaan, to the Canaanites, and when you, when you start conquering the lands, and, and as I empower you to conquer the lands, you're going to need to drive them out, lest they be thorns in your sides. He said, you're going to have to drive all the Canaanites out of the land. And yet we see here that they do not. They use them for their own monetary benefits. And so that's where Israel's at spiritually now, going into Judges 2. Israel sinned. They've shown evidence of their spiritual state being not where it should be because they adapted to the culture of the Canaanites. This sin from the Israelites brings us into Judges 2, where the first five verses of the chapter is God dealing with the sin. And what we'd see here in these first five verses is that there was going to be a different process, but the same product. You see, Israel, Israel broke their covenant. By doing what God had told them not to do, they broke the covenant with God that God had made with them, and they broke the covenant that, that God would, would have them really easily take the land of the Canaanites. And, and since they broke that, that, then it wasn't going to be that way, though. It was going to be a different process. And so now and they're in a spot where, where they broke the covenant, and, and you'll see this in verses two of, of, uh, Judges, of Judges two when, when, um, or sorry, let me, let me read, uh, chapter two, verses one. And an angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal and Bochim and said, I made you to go out of Egypt and brought you from the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. He's reminding them all he had done for them. And ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars 
but ye have not obeyed my voice. What have ye, why have ye done this? Wherefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and God shall be a snare unto you. He says, wherefore, I also said, this is where that come from. He's, he's reminding them what he did for them, but he's also reminding you, I told you if you did this, this would be breaking the covenant, and the process would be different. And so now they're in a place where, where spiritually they're, they're, they're in, a, in a wrong place, but how did they get from this Israel that was serving the Lord and Israel that had their, their, their life solidified from the greatness of God to serve the Lord, how did they get from this place to where they broke a covenant and they're in sin and now their, their process looks totally different? If you, if you look back at six, verse 6 with me of Judges 2, we'll see our answer. Verse 6, And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man unto this land, unto his inheritance to possess the land. And so we, we have another change of, of tense here. We're switching from present tense, which was verses 1 through 5, we're, and we're going to, to past tense. Because Joshua died in the beginning of this book, but now we're, we're switching gears here. So we're going back to past tense. When Joshua just let them out after his charge, in, in verse 6, we see that, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders to outlive Joshua, who had seen all the great works the Lord had done, that he did for Israel. So we, we saw that verse in Joshua. And Joshua, the son of Nun, verse 8, The servant of the Lord died, being 110 years old. And they buried him, and, and it would go on to explain that. And then look at verse 10. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And it makes sense because, because there is a discrepancy here in this current generation of Israel. See, God had told the, the previous generation of Israel they should not worry for chariots and the militaries of their enemies because he will conquer them. Yet this generation stopped when it came to the chariots. Judah did not believe he could overtake them. And God told the previous generation that they could use the women and cattle, but not if they were Canaanites because they would corrupt them. Yet this generation used the Canaanites for their own monetary benefits. And God told the former generation of Israel through Joshua that if they kept the inhabitants of the land, then they would be as thorn in their sides and would be as snares in their, and would be as snares, yet they did just that. And we know why they did all this because they didn't know the Lord. I want to point that out. It says, which knew not the Lord. So, and, and it's not talking about no, of, of knowledge of. They knew him and, and who he was, but they had no relationship with him. But look at this. This is important. Nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. They didn't even know the works he had done for Israel. So the reason why this generation does not know the Lord is really made clear here. It's the next generation of Israel did not know the Lord because the former generation neglected to teach them the great things that God had done for them. You see, them, them not knowing the works of the Lord, that wasn't, that wasn't a, a reciprocated problem. That wasn't a problem from someone who's listening. No, that's a problem from someone who wasn't told. They didn't even know the works the Lord had done for them. And you see, this came from a, a generation of Israel that had solidified in their hearts because they saw the great things the Lord had done for them, and they had solidified in their hearts everything that God had done, and because of this, they were able to serve the Lord and have full confidence in that because they knew all everything that God had done for them. But there was this next generation that they failed to teach because even though in their whole, own hearts the message was solidified, there was a generation to come after that was neglected to be taught. They were settled in their own beliefs, they had seen God work, but they failed to relay that feeling and the sentiment to the next generation. And this is why we should strive 
to teach the next generation what God has done so they know what He can do. You see, we have the tendency, just like the Israelites, to be content in our own beliefs, which causes us to neglect the teaching of the next generation, a generation who doesn't know all that God has done, cannot possibly be expected to have great confidence in what He can do. Failure to teach up the next generation will cause them to adapt to culture and neglect God. I, I, I think of Mother's Day and, and the, the, the day we celebrate that we all hold so near and dear to our hearts and, and how important mothers are for raising up the next generation. And, and I think of that and, and how important they are to, to, teach, to teach their children and, and, to, and to teach all of their kids that, that this is what the Lord has done for me and this is what He can do for you. This is, and I, I, I appreciate dads too, even, even on this day, that, that can take their sons. And like my dad took me and say, this is what the Lord has done for me financially, and he can provide for you too. And I appreciate youth workers like Brother Nick who can take these teens and say, this is what the Lord has done for me, and this is what he can do for you. And it's so important to, to not just let the, the message solidify in our hearts, though that is important as well, to remember what God has done, but it's so important to relay that to the next generation because it's crucial in, what to, in what's to come. And I'm thankful that I've had men and, and my mom in my life to, to take me and say, this is what the Lord's done for me, and look at what He can do for you. We should strive to teach the younger generation what He has done for them so they might know what He can do for them. This is why we have a youth ministry. It's why we have children's church. It's raising up a next generation to serve the Lord. The outcome of a generation that wasn't taught the Lord was one who was in direct disobedience to Him. Let's not neglect the importance of raising up the next generation. And the second pastor is going to come up, and I don't know if we're doing an altar call or not, so I'm going to close in a, in a word of prayer. I mean, as I pray, if, if something in the message, in Brother Grant's message of remembering your surrender, if that spoke to you, then, then maybe pray about that at, silently. Or, or if something in my message spoke to you of raising up this next generation and the importance of it, I ask you to pray in your heart about that. I'm going to close in a word of prayer for now, and pastor's going to come up. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for everything you've done for us today. Thank you for allowing us to come to church today and worship you, Lord. I I. I truly thank you for the work you're doing in this church and the work through these people you're doing in me, Lord. I thank you for everything you've done for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Keep your heads bowed, eyes closed. I think it's a great way these messages have tied together. We heard the first message, the importance of having a Bethel. We hear in the second message what happens when we don't. I want to have her begin to play. Would you just stand along with me, heads bowed, eyes closed. If God spoke to your heart and you need to come forward and settle something or make a commitment How tragic it is when we forget what God has done.